0: It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. One consistent theme that we revisit on this podcast is the idea of how. People make decisions, particularly when it comes to data work and analysis and empirical information. I'm totally fascinated by the way in which people try and make rational decisions and gather evidence, but how that consistently butts up against our biases, our preconceptions, and our blind spots. Well, there's some new research out there that sheds a light on decision making and the role that information and trust plays in our decision making. 538's Carl Bialik didn't do this research, but he wrote about it and he thinks about these kinds of things more broadly, and he's been on the show many times, but he is back now to talk about it. So Carl, welcome back to What's the Point? Thanks, Jody. Um, so we'll get into some of the larger ramifications of this study. Uh, but like, what what is the study and what did it find? Sure. So this is a study
1: from NORC at the University of Chicago. It's NORC, doesn't stand for anything. Really? Give it like KFC. Yeah, it's one of these <laughs> acronyms or initializations <laughs> that now is just a name. Okay. But they still don't like to be called NORC. We got to get all this right, right at the top. And they are a 75-year-old research organization. They turned 75 later this month. And they, to mark the occasion, wanted to study how Americans get information and how that's changed from five years ago. I think it would have been interesting if they'd looked at 75 years ago, given the anniversary, but they would have gotten fewer respondents who would have been able to answer that in a credible way. So they're asking people, where do they seek information? What do they trust? Where do they turn when they feel conflicted about something? And they also cross-reference that with other attributes. So some of these are demographic attributes like age, race, gender, ethnicity. And some of them are attitudinal. So they also ask people, for instance, about certain policy positions like how they felt about Obamacare, how they felt about gay marriage,
0: and did they believe global warming is happening? And I know there's all sorts of wrinkles to what they found, but in general, what did they find? I think the overall picture is really good.
1: It's really optimistic, which is nice. I I think sometimes, especially in our jobs, given what we do, we can feel overwhelmed by information and can be a little cynical about it and, oh, we should never tweet. Uh, We're on Slack too much, which is the communications medium of choice in our office and many offices. We're overwhelmed by email. But this is a nice window into how Americans overall are feeling about the information they're getting. And for the most part, they feel like they have more information than they used to and most of the time are not overwhelmed by it. So about 80 percent said that sometimes they're overwhelmed by the information. But most of the people in that group said it was really just occasional and mostly they feel OK. And
0: I mean the five – I think you're right to bemoan that like, oh, I wish we could have gotten a bigger time frame. But I think that five-year window is – it's actually kind of interesting because it does feel like we've convinced ourselves that there's just a media and information revolution like every year, basically, and everything has radically changed. And I think this is a nice reminder. I was with you, I was a little surprised that people tend to like adjust to the climate and then, you know, whatever kind of way that they're going to process information, they're going to feel relatively well informed.
1: Yeah. And I was thinking about what's changed in the last five years mm-hmm. in terms of information. And it does feel, on the one hand, like things changed so much. But on the other hand, when I thought about five years ago, smartphones were already ubiquitous, not quite as much as now. Social media was already ubiquitous, maybe not quite as much as now. It, there are more people online more often, but already most people were online. So it fe- felt more like an evolutionary change in the last five years. And maybe because the tools we have and the media we have available to us through those tools haven't changed that much in those five years, that that's given people time to kind of adjust to them, figure out what works for them, when they will turn to certain things, and what they'll make of what they learn there.
0: You mentioned some of the demographic information that they that they match this, these responses up against. Does this cut across party lines? Does this cut across dem- demographic groups, age? Yeah. One thing I liked is how they looked at how much this changes
1: based on these different attributes. And it turns out that for race, ethnicity, and gender, there aren't very big differences in terms of how people consume information and how well-informed they feel they are. On age and education, not surprisingly, there are some big differences. For instance, people 60 and older, about twice as many of them still are relying heavily on television as are people 18 to 29. And conversely, not surprisingly, younger people are relying more on internet and digital sources. And education-wise, the more educated people are, the more they're turning to the internet, search engines. And in terms of party lines, there weren't such big differences except that both Democrats and Republicans were more – interested in and reliant on government and political leaders than independent. So what really set apart the independents here, not surprisingly, the reason that many self-identify as independents, they don't want to rely on politicians. They don't like government and politicians. So that's really what they're reacting to. And we see that in terms of what information they trust.
0: Now, it's worth saying, right? Like you're 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 pointing out that respondents felt well-informed and they felt like they were able to find good information, but they were but in many ways they they are are still separate ecosystems. We're not sort of exploding the notion that there's a diff, everyone's living in potentially in their own echo chambers. It's just that within those echo chambers people tend to have similar experiences.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. If you ask people are they using social media and the same percentage of Republicans and Democrats say yes. They're following different people. They're sure. relying on different sites. When they say even television, there this is, goes well back before five years. There are different television stations that will have very different slants on what they convey and will cover some stories that the other ones won't. And. You know, one of the things that is striking about this kind of study is you're asking people where they find information they trust, but there's really no way to know if they should be trusting
0: that information. That was my big question. I think that's what complicates it. It's like you ask someone if they feel that they're well-informed and they say yes, that might be the problem right there.
1: Exactly. And, you know, it also made me think about the different levels of trust and of trustworthiness. Like I might trust something enough that I would forward it to a friend but not trust enough to change my opinion about something, which is a pretty high bar. And trustworthiness, in general, people still rated what sometimes is called legacy media pretty high in this study, like newspapers and radio. And it could be that on one level, they're trustworthy in that they're conveying basically true information, but they're not trustworthy in terms of which stories they choose to cover or how they choose to present the information, which sources they quote. So they might be right The respondents in the survey and feeling like these are generally trustworthy relative to, let's say, a website that doesn't vet any information and just publishes whatever comes into it. I I can't think of any right now, but Mm -hmm. maybe you can through your politics podcast work. I've got a whole bunch of (laughs) bookmarks for this. Yeah. Um, But even if it's more trustworthy than a totally unvetted site – you still might be getting a certain slant and, you know, these are sort of levels of reliability and objectivity that that are difficult to parse in
0: a survey like this. You mentioned that there was an element here about people describing, you know, changing their mind and that's really interesting to me. I mean do you get the sense that people are willing to change their mind? Well. Certainly, people
1: want to convey to others that they're willing to change their mind. And, and that's also another challenge when you survey them about it. But they did give different answers about which sources they would rely on to change mm-hmm. their mind. So, one thing that really struck me, especially in this electoral season, and the survey was done in January, which was a less heightened season of the campaign, but still, <laughs> it was very, still happening back then. Very charged primary yeah. campaigns going on. And people rated pretty low on this scale of what sources could influence them to change their mind, political leaders, political candidates, issue organizations, relative to something like word of mouth. Uh, One thing that really struck me in this survey is how highly people rated word of mouth as a source and how that cut across just about every – When you say word of mouth – how how broadly are you defining that? Does like,
0: Facebook count as word of well, mouth? I, abs- I
1: think it can. I mean there's – one of the other things that comes up is there's a lot of overlap between categories. So social media can mean both yeah. your cousin and the New York Times depending on how you consume what you get on Facebook. But I think – When people say that, what they're meaning is friends and family, and that could be in person, it could be by phone, and it could be not at all personal, just somebody's Facebook post, but you trust that person, and so you listen to them. And maybe even as people are spending more time in a digital world, they're spending more time connecting with the people they love and care about the most, even if it's not even direct or personal, and that could be influencing them. And so this is a real opportunity and challenge for candidates and issue organizations that if they want to reach people they have to kind of get to them through the people they trust and you have to persuade people through people which is somewhat reassuring and then also makes their work hard
0: yeah and i mean that and that has always been i guess the case in politics you know there's an adage that like the best way to convince someone to vote is to talk to someone who they trust who either Actually, I hate the research shows the best way to convince the voters to make them feel really guilty when they talk to someone <laughs> who who they trust who's voting and they're not. But basically, yeah, those personal connections are much are much deeper. And I'm with you in that, like, I want to like that as a notion. But I also wonder how you feel, you know, taking Facebook as an example of just like the flattening on Facebook of. You can look at it two ways, right? It either means that word of mouth gets elevated to the level where it's just as important as the New York Times because it's all kind of appearing in the same way. But then it also means that it's bringing something like the New York Times down to the same playing field as your cousin who may not know what they're talking about.
1: Yeah, I, I, it does worry me. Certainly, I am biased towards worrying about it because I am part of this media apparatus that would like to
0: hold a special place. I should have just start. used five thirty eight in that example. By the way, we we do this kind of work. Too. <laughs> I don't know why I use the New York Times as my—it's still my default vaunted trusted Same, media well, organization. But yes, <laughs> also, you know,
1: this this survey asked about newspapers in a way that I think maybe it wouldn't in twenty twenty one if they did the survey yeah. again. So so that's another reason I think the Times comes to mind. You know, I think this is also somewhat an old problem. Like even before Facebook and before the internet, maybe people said they trusted the New York Times more than their friends. Maybe not. But even if they did, most people didn't read the New York Times and a lot of people would encounter the information that was contained in it through some kind of filter. It could be someone who mentioned they read an article or mentioned they talked to someone who read an article And that's how you end up hearing that information and hopefully you're hearing it in the way it was originally intended. Even if you are, you're not getting the full context and background and caveats. So it does worry me all the time when I look at Facebook but then I remember being at some dinner party and someone saying, I remember reading this article that said – and it often turns out not to be right or they almost say the opposite of what it said. I guess at least in a digital world, you can quickly try to track it and check Mm -hmm. it, which is nice. And people really rated search engines highly. And here's another survey question, which I found funny because Google is such an overwhelming power in search engines, but they don't ask about Google. But that's how I read the result. And right there alongside newspapers, radio, magazines, television is search engines as a source. And I think it shows how active people are at filtering information and how good they've gotten, which, again, is an encouraging sign that they see search engines as reliable because they're part of that search. They get the results and then they choose which ones to look at and what to trust.
0: We'll get back to my conversation with Carl Bialik in a minute. But first, a word from this week's sponsor. What's the Point is brought to you by Blue Apron. Not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients make a real difference, so it's important to know where your food is coming from. It's also important that you put those ingredients to good use by finding the time to cook and making meal preparation easy to do. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Whether it's Japanese ramen noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron is bringing you the best. It's easy, too. Each meal comes with step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe cards and pre-portioned ingredients that can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. Right now, check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash point. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash point for three free meals, blueapron.com slash point. Okay, back to the show. I want to go back to this question about, like, certainty. To me, that feels like the thing that's at the heart of all this is whether you are basically wired to feel like you know, with a capital K, NLW, or, you know, you're wired to always be questioning. And I guess the survey kind of got a little bit to that in that it asked people, you know, how, much, how high information do you feel? Um, but, like, how do we break out of that notion of kind of deluding people into thinking that They are high information. Well, one part of the survey
1: I really liked asked people how they kind of break a tie. When they do feel pretty Mm -hmm. conflicted, what do they do about it? And as a fan of uncertainty or a fan of the notion that people should be uncertain about many things and probably more things than the average person is, I was a little disappointed that very few people said they simply flipped a coin or just otherwise chose some random way of choosing something. But people did take a lot of steps to try to get information. And again, they might end up in a place that doesn't provide good information. But they would search online, they would talk to people, they would look for a trusted source, and they would trust their gut on when they were uncertain. And That seems a little unsatisfying, but there isn't always a great measure of how certain you should be about something because sometimes even some of the most trusted sources, even 538, can sound a little more certain about things than they are just because that's an easier way to convey information. So I do like the idea of people at least – Checking their gut to see if they really believe something, and if they don't, at least trying to
0: answer the question. I hope they get out of their echo chambers. Something that has just come up a bunch on this, especially when talking about science journalism as well, but like, and political journalism, is like the need to play in these media ecosystems is so often reliant on like a good headline, and a good headline tends to often overpromise when it comes to this very thing and certainty. You know, you think. Like on the health front, you know, seven superfoods that will solve X problem, or even on our end, you know, we'll write a a politics article. The article itself, the content is very nuanced and is mostly just like testing out theories, but then there's this imperative to like have this headline that lands.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think when we think internally about headlines, we're often thinking in terms of, what are the other headlines on our site or the other headlines they're seeing on Twitter or whatever feed they're using to get news that will make them click on this one? And to some extent, you need to tell them that this is not just interesting or informative but more so than the other thing they could be yeah. clicking on. And this survey is a reminder of all the other things we're competing with too. So when we're in the Facebook feed, which we do think about sometimes too, we're competing with things that aren't traditional news sources but your friends' new dog photos or you know their job news or wedding photos – and then you're competing with all the offline sources. People are still spending time talking to people and everything else. And we, we at five thirty eight encourage that. But we do kind of need to make a case of this is the best thing, the most useful thing. Like this is the thing that will decide the election. And our naturally skeptical and cautious nature will always kind of conflict with that. And I think it's something that's happening all across media is trying to balance those things.
0: And this is another reminder that like, when you hear those conversations about Facebook tweaking their algorithm and valuing certain kinds of posts over others and Google doing the same in terms of search results, those conversations really matter. I mean, they really have an effect on the kind of information that people get and how narrow their their echo chamber is.
1: Yeah, I mean, those sources, we know about them in terms of businesses and share of time already that they're enormously powerful in this country and internationally. But I think this survey also reminds us just how powerful and important they are in terms of people getting information that they rely on. I mean, this survey was asking about how you come to policy positions, but also how you come to purchasing decisions. And that's Mm. also really important. And, yeah, a small change in one of those sites could have a big effect on businesses, on consumer behavior, on relationships.
0: You mentioned the um, people coming to policy decisions. So I think there's this adage out there, certainly I think among liberals, that like high information tends to lead towards more liberal policy decisions. Does anything in this research bear that out? To a certain extent. And they were pretty careful in the in
1: the survey and we tried to be careful in our story here, because it can kind of feed into that conception and I think there's something more subtle happening. But the finding is that for the issues I mentioned, which are supporting Obamacare, supporting gay marriage, and believing that global warming is happening. And I got several emails saying, you shouldn't s- phrase it that way. You engage in that premise? Right. You should just say who acknowledged that it's happening. Right. But I was trying to use the survey wording, but point taken, it is happening for all you listening. And the the survey found that the more people valued information that came from experts, that came based on evidence, or that was based in some kind of government data, the more they tended to agree with those positions to support Obamacare, support gay marriage, or believe global warming is happening. And it's not clear what's causing what, like, it could be that some other trait is tied to both of those, it could be that some people wrote in to say that religion is a big factor here, and not in all of those issues, but let's say in gay marriage, it could be. Uh, that people who are religious see the question asking about evidence or about research and don't think that means religious Mm. scripture. And so they will say, well, that's not really something I look to to make decisions. And also people who are religious, depending on the religion and their beliefs, may be less likely to support gay marriage. So there certainly could be other factors at play. But one thing that was really striking is that this cross party line. So Republicans, for instance— who valued evidence, expert opinion, and government data were much more likely to support these positions.
0: We got to wrap up uh, in a little bit, but there there was also an element here of like geography and like we tend to think of the internet as making our world smaller, right? You can find information from wherever at the tip of your fingers. Did, did this give us any clues about how broad of a net people are able to ca- cast when, when gathering information?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... In terms of the flattening of the Internet, when you're looking at the news through a news site, through Twitter, uh, through Facebook, when something is happening anywhere, it can feel just as immediate as something happening right around you. And people, for the most part, said they were more informed on national and international news than they were five years ago. On the other hand, only 36 percent of people said they felt more informed about their neighbors and their neighborhoods. And that just really struck me because – On the one hand, it could just be a crowding out phenomenon, like the more interesting thing or the thing that's resonating more with your friends all around the country and the world probably isn't happening right around you. So it could just be you're devoting more time to other things. But also we've seen a decline in local news sources. We've seen attempts like patch not really take off. And in general, just a kind of nationalizing and internationalizing of how we get information about the world and politics and also about our friends that also maybe can make people feel less connected to the people immediately around them. And I think that's striking in terms of how people react, let's say, to terrorist attacks now or yeah. to natural disasters, that there's a sense that everyone around the world is reacting in a way that can be very good and create solidarity and sometimes uh, donations and support, but also can sort of lead to terror and fear and anger reaching everyone no matter how
0: far away this event and happened. Frankly, exhaustion in a sense. I mean yeah. that's one thing I have felt this year covering the election, but also just living in a what feels like a very tumultuous year, potentially for these reasons, but it's just the inability to parse like what is a bad thing that happened and we acknowledge that it's a bad thing that happened, but it is not day or week or year crushing Event, you know, everything's at a seven or an yeah. eight. And it's, and I don't think it's healthy, both just in terms of like living your day to day life, but also in terms of trying to kind of nudge our democracy along and figure out what kind of the important things to focus are on.
1: Yeah. And I think of how I got news about, let's say, an attack at a mall in Germany versus like the news of a bombing in Chelsea near where we work. And it kind of arrived in the same medium and it sort of resonated in the same way, even though r- one was right in our neighborhood and one was, yeah. you know, across the Atlantic. I'm not saying one was more important than the other and we should care about the rest of the world, but it was encouraging to see that people who are living in that same environment don't feel overwhelmed. So maybe because of their job or because of the coping mechanisms they've come up with, they figured out a way to, to deal with that onslaught or or maybe uh, they're not and they just feel like they are, but it really is taking tolls that not everyone is recognizing.
0: All right. Well, gosh, do we have to leave it on that note that it's all <laughs> exhausting and overwhelming? But no, I mean – but to circle back to the initial conclusions that we may feel overwhelmed because it is kind of our job yeah. to be these um, conduits for the, for the news in many ways. And I think a lot of our listeners are that way too. Mm-hmm. But in general, it's a nice reminder that people sort of find the equilibrium in whatever environment they're in and that there and there they live pe- their lives. And there are people in the survey who actually
1: want more information. I mean yeah. a lot of people who have low education – Uh, do not get to access the internet for a lot of things they want. So there are people who want to be more overwhelmed and are underwhelmed right now. All
0: right. Well, Carl Bialik, thank you for chatting about this. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Judy. You can read Carl Bialik's write-up and find a link to the full study on our website, com slash podcasts. What's The Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Chadwick Matlin, who is getting married this weekend. Congratulations to you and Martha. We're all very happy for you. Jorge Estrada and Tony Chow are in the control room. Thanks to Ryan Nantel for help this week. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. On our webpage, you can find a link to download his music for this podcast. My name is Jody Avergan. You can find me on Twitter or email me at podcasts at 538.com with any ideas or questions about the show. You can subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes, the Google Play Store, or the new ESPN app. Wherever you get your podcasts, when you subscribe, leave us a rating and a review. It really does help others discover the show. Thanks again for listening. See you soon.